Well, I get to be the first one uh, to speak on this summer series, which is a little bit different than we have normally done it. As, uh, as you know, it, we have a lot of firsts on a lot of different things in this time. And so uh, for all those that are coming next, I'm glad that I get to go first and get this out of the way of speaking to uh, auditorium like this, but I look forward to the time where we can get back together and really looking forward to those moments. And I know you are as well. And we are in constant prayer about uh, the church worldwide, but especially for the church here with many of you uh, going through a lot of situations and thinking about our elders making decisions and uh, keeping them in our prayers as they are uh, shepherding the flock and carrying such a great weight on them. And so we need to think about them uh, as we go through this, and as we think about our members here. What we're going to do for a little bit of our time tonight is focus on James, the brother of Jesus. And this has been a really fascinating study for me personally, and I'm going to break it down into two different sections. The first one, we're going to look at uh, understanding the story of James. And it's weird maybe to think about it that way, when you think about the story of James, because he pops up in situations throughout the Gospels, and in the book of Acts, as well as some letters from Paul. And what we're going to do is we're going to connect these things that we can find out about James in order to construct a little bit of a narrative about his life. And in the second half, what we're going to look at are some applications from James, the brother, and what we can know about him and what uh, we can learn from him to apply to our lives. So we are focusing on James, the brother of Jesus. You know, when you think about the name James, you might have a couple of different things that come to your mind. Maybe you think about James, the apostle, one of the apostles. Uh, you think about James, that maybe uh, wrote the book of James. Or maybe it's a number of the, the names that may just pop up randomly in your reading that you find a certain character named James. And it's hard to differentiate between all of these men and find out, you know, is it referring to the same person or not? And, and you could really get caught up in a lot of these studies and, and start tracing these names down. And, and you might make some false connections that don't really add up. And, and what I want to think about tonight are the passages that we can really bank on that show us this character, James, that is specifically the brother of Jesus. And I want to stop and consider that for a moment as we think about this first key passage that Jesus had brothers. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? When Jesus is going through his ministry, one of the things that's going to get called out about him is, who does he belong to? Wait, this Jesus that has come into Galilee, that's come into Nazareth, that's come to all these places around here, who is he to be telling me what I'm doing? Well, he's just the carpenter's son. Man, we can, t we can go back to his home, we can talk to his dad, and we can ask Joseph, is, is this how you trained him? Is this the kind of person that came up in your home? Maybe we can go ask his mother, Mary, do you know what's going on with Jesus? Do you know what he's doing right now? I mean, this is definitely pertinent when you think about earlier in the ministry of Jesus where he comes and stands in the synagogue and he reads a passage from Isaiah that refers specifically to the Messiah that all the Jews would have known. And yet in that moment he says... This refers to me. It made people question, is Jesus out of his mind? How can we know more about him? Well, we all know his family. We can go talk to his dad. We can go talk to his mother. But we can also talk to his siblings. You know, siblings have a lot to say about each other. 
Uh, we do a really good job as brothers and sisters, as siblings, throwing one another, one another under the bus. Uh, we do a good job of airing out all the dirty laundry in order to, to really point out what the other person is doing. And you think about this, Jesus had siblings. And many times throughout, the, throughout Jesus' ministry, and we're going to see some of these passages, his brothers are concerned about Jesus. They see him going around and preaching all these things and what seems like him trying to override the law of Moses, and they're concerned about him. They don't know why in the world is he doing this. Is he crazy? Is he out of his mind? We need to bring him back home. Yet over and over again, we find that that small entourage of his family pops up over and over again in the ministry. And it's not just because Jesus is in their hometown, but there was something about following them around. And maybe it was because Mary wanted to go on these trips and she was going to follow her son around, and, and maybe they came along as well, or they specifically went after him uh, in order to, to get more information about him. But I think it's so interesting as we study about Jesus that he had siblings. You can look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and it talks about them once again. Not only did he have brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, but he also had sisters, a whole family. And I understand that this might conflict with some of our uh, religious friends that look at the, the family of Mary, not thinking that she had any more children beyond Jesus. I think it's interesting as well as you read Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph did not know his wife until she gave birth to Jesus. And clearly from passages like this, we understand that Jesus technically had half-brothers um, as we think about where Jesus came from. But as we build this narrative about James, we first have to make a case that Jesus had siblings. And we see that from Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, as well as Mark 6, verse 3. But this leads to another thing that we understand about James, as well as his other siblings. Go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we get this interesting story of Jesus being invited or being encouraged to go to a feast. Starting in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, the feast of the booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, if we were to stop right here and, and you just kind of digest this conversation that Jesus' brothers are having with him, do you think this is positive or negative? Do you think they seem to be encouraging Jesus in his ministry? Hey, why don't you go somewhere and, and all these things that you've been doing over here, why don't you go do them publicly? It almost seems encouraging until you look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. It kind of gives you a different light, though, if you go back, and I think it's obvious as you read it, but at one point you may think maybe they're encouraging him in his ministry, but that's not the case at all. They're mocking him. They're saying, look, won't you go do these things publicly? And it's quite obvious from uh, verse 1 that the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because of all the things that he's been doing so far in his ministry. And his brothers are trying to expose him, and the, the story gets a little more complicated from there, but I want you to take special note of verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. We'll find throughout the, the gospel narratives of Jesus that there were a lot of people that refused to follow Jesus, but 
didn't really believe in him. Some people followed him around and they didn't believe in him. It's that believing aspect, and that's one of the things that the Gospel according to John really highlights is this this statement of belief and how people can see all these works that Jesus is doing and do they believe it or not. In fact, that's one of the main reasons why John writes his Gospel account as you can go to the end of it. He says, many other things did Jesus do. The world could not contain the books that would describe all the great deeds that he did, but the things that are written here are so that you may believe. And it's echoed again in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the same sentiment that you can know, you can have assurance that what Jesus did, it proves that He was the Son of God. And somehow Jesus' own family that He grew up around did not believe Him. As we see this kind of unveiling and realizing more that, that Jesus does, you know, I can see this growth process of His family. I mean, just from the the birth announcements themselves, you look at Mary and Joseph, they had a lot of questions about what was happening with this son that they were going to have. When Jesus is found in the temple, when he's 12 years old, his mother stores these things up in her heart because it it was strange that her son was talking to those that had been learned in the law, and he was able to have discussions with them, and she stored it up in her heart. And there's a couple of times that's mentioned, specifically in the book of Luke. You see this growth process of them understanding more, and we see it with everyone that comes in contact with Jesus, and this is key as we continue this study. The more that people come in contact with Jesus, there is this fuller understanding that they're receiving about who He really is. Do you think about all the other apostles, those disciples that followed Jesus around? It's much later in the ministry of Jesus where they have this aha moment. When you think about Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And soon as Peter, along with those other apostles, come to this realization, Jesus begins to teach, it's time for me to go to the cross. It's time for me to depart. And so you see this coming to a knowledge and an understanding about the things that Jesus is doing. And I see in this passage that they were not yet believing in Him. But what they're talking about is, Jesus, why don't you go do all these great deeds that you're doing in secret? Why don't you go do them publicly? But at this point, they're not believing. So this takes us to the next passage that I want to look at as we reveal this understanding about James, the brother of Jesus. It comes from Paul's account of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is a really good passage for you to mark down of proving what the gospel is. Paul starts off in this section as he closes his book. He reminds the the Corinthian church, and it's really a reminder to us, of what he preached. It's really what he received, what he knew, everything that he was aware of concerning the gospel. And you see in verse 3, he says, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And you stop there. And you think about all these people that witnessed The resurrected Jesus. You read the the resurrection accounts. When they first come to the tomb, they didn't know what to expect. 
When they came to, to roll back the stone on that Sunday morning after the Sabbath, some of them didn't really know what to expect of what was going to be behind the stone. Was there going to be a body wrapped in cloth? Was Jesus going to be sitting there? Was it going to be completely empty? Was it going to be filled with soldiers that maybe came in and, and took it? When they came Sunday morning, there were a lot of different emotions, and you read through each one of the gospel accounts and how they talk about these resurrection appearances. It's interesting to see what they see and what they understand. But after the fact, as Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection, there's a lot of coming to a realization of who he is. I think about Thomas. Thomas wanting to touch Jesus' hands and his side because he had missed the first round of when Jesus came into their meeting. And, and finally, he gets that second one. And, and Jesus talks about, you know, those that come after me that don't need to see me and don't need to touch me, they can believe. The time spent with Jesus raised from the dead, seeing his appearances, it makes you connect all the dots throughout his ministry, especially when he started teaching, it's time for me to die, but don't worry. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth, but He will rise. I am the resurrection and the life. And all of those dots start connecting as all of a sudden Jesus is standing in front of you. And as Paul is recording all of these things, you get to, uh, you get to uh, verse 7. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. There's some connections that you can make here along with some other things that we know about James that, that we believe that this is referring to Jesus' brother James. Because when you get to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, when all of the disciples are, are you know, Jesus has already ascended, and they're waiting for the Spirit to come, all of these disciples are gathered together in a room. And they don't know really what's to come next. But you find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, You've got all the disciples that are gathered. Mary, and who do you find there with them? The brothers, including James. How do you go from a man that did not believe in Jesus, that called him crazy, tried to drag him back home? How do you, uh, someone that said in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, he says, He is out of his mind. When Jesus first calls those apostles, those close knit people, in Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35, his family starts looking for Jesus and trying to bring him back home because who are you to replace us? And that's the whole conversation happening there. There was a lot of confusion, but they saw the resurrected Jesus, specifically James, his brother. And this just adds to the story a little bit more, especially as we get to Galatians. And you get in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, this is coming from Paul that is much later, and you see that in 1 Corinthians 15, that even after this, that uh, in verse 8 it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, as Paul is speaking this. So he's the, the last one there. But Paul kind of did his research as he was uh, first converted on the road when he saw Jesus. And it's at that point that he became an apostle, and he refreshes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, this is the reason why I'm an apostle, because I was sent out by Jesus. The same way you get in Acts chapter 1, only those that could be selected to replace Judas had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul is recounting that, and he does it in multiple places, but one of the times where he, he traces down where he's been is in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. And he talks about some visits that he has to Jerusalem. And I think it's so cool to see in Galatians 
who he comes in contact with. Galatians 1 verse 19, here's what Paul says. I'll start in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Wow. How do we go from unbelief to now being part of this church that's meeting in Jerusalem, but not just a normal person? calls him an apostle. The Lord's brother. We actually learn a little bit more as we go beyond this and just go ahead and connect the next part. In chapter 2, as Paul comes back for another visit, in chapter 2, verse 9, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll back up to verse 7. It says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he had worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work, also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul's delineating, okay, I'm to go to the Gentiles predominantly. Peter was going to uh, the Jews. That was kind of their main focus. But you get the verse 9. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to, gen to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Now when Paul comes back on this second a visit to Jerusalem, and he's gathering more information, and we're going to go to uh, two more passages in the book of Acts to confirm this further. Paul goes and he speaks to them. And as he comes to the church in Jerusalem, there's three main people that he calls a pillar that stand out. Cephas, John, and James. And we're going to know a little bit more that this is referring to James, the brother of Jesus, because there's some uh, passages throughout Acts that tell us that, that this is exactly who it was. Because we know that James, the other apostle, the brother of John, is that he is killed by the hand of the king in Acts chapter 12. So that James is out of the picture, so this, re this remains the other James. But we see that he is a pillar in Jerusalem. You can see this narrative forming around this gentleman. Complete unbelief to now being a pillar in the church. And so we see in Acts chapter 15, well actually we can look at um, Acts chapter 12, I'll show one passage here before we get to 15. When Peter is released from prison, he goes and he tells the church, that he has been released and he spent some time with them. But look at Acts chapter 12, verse 17. As he, he comes into this assembly that was there praying for him, wanting him to be released, and he comes to them and they don't believe him. Uh, but then he's there and he talks to them. But he says in uh, Acts 12, starting in verse 17, But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So he's referring to this James that's in Jerusalem, and we find out who he is when you get to this big, I guess if you want to call it a conference or a council that's in chapter 15. Paul's been on his missionary journeys. He's come in contact with Gentiles. The church doesn't really know how to assimilate these Gentiles into the family of God. They have some deep-seated uh, false ideas that they don't really know how to handle. 
And you've got a group of Pharisees that are rising up and they're talking to the, the brothers that are here. And they're upset and they think, you know what, I think all these Gentiles that are coming in, they need to be circumcised. And so there, there's this huge discussion with Paul there and, and the whole church in Jerusalem. And they're, they're trying to figure out exactly what do we do with these Gentiles. We can't tell them to, to follow circumcision because that's been done away with. That was a different covenant. That was a different promise. So can we really do that? Can we expect that out of them? Kind of like what Paul maybe did with Timothy. Is it just for a show so that he can have some conversations with people? What is going on here? And you find in uh, Acts 15 verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth a Gentile should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So the first person to get up here is like, look guys, we've got to stop debating this. Don't you know that we are supposed to go to the Gentiles? And so he explains this a little bit further, but pay attention to verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul who are recounting what they've done in their missionary journeys as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, this is the same James that we've been connecting all these dots with, understanding him to be James, the brother of Jesus. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who he's referring to Simon Peter, but he calls him Simeon, his Jewish name, is related how good and how great God was when he first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Have you ever been in a room where there's been a discussion going on and the room just kind of falls apart to two different sides of a conversation. And, and there's one person that kind of maybe they stop to the side and they don't say anything. And they just wait. And everybody gets all flustered and they get all upset. And then that person opens their mouth and they speak. And it kind of just stops the whole conversation. There's no more discussion beyond that point. That's what James does here. He tells them, he said, look, this is what God had planned. And so here's our encouragement to them. As we speak to the Gentiles, live a life like God would want you to live. Avoid some things that may cause some dissensions between you and the weaker brothers. If you want to pull in some of Paul's language from Romans chapter 14 and 15. It says, avoid these things and tell all the Gentiles that so they know what to do. And the conversation ends. You understand why he's referred to as a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Because when he spoke, People listened. So when I think about James, we construct this narrative about him. We see uh, him being a part of the family of Jesus, and then we see him as an unbeliever and even mocking Jesus and, and saying that he's crazy. And then the more that we learn about Jesus and the more that specifically James knows about Jesus, the more he draws closer and then he grows beyond it. And it's so amazing to me to think about this one key character throughout the Scriptures and what he does. And so this, uh, this draws a few things in my mind and what I want to conclude with are some lessons that we can learn from James based on what we know from the Scriptures that confirm who he is and what he did. I think there's three specific things that I would like to, to share with you that can be an encouragement for all of us. First off is the road to belief crosses many obstacles. As we think about him in his life, he crossed so many obstacles. So many things personally that he had to get beyond 
But he is willing to do it when he considered all the evidence. When he considered all the, the information. When he saw Jesus, he knew what he needed to do. Many of you, and even in my own personal life, we realize on our way to belief, we cross a lot of paths with people and with things in our life that maybe we don't want to go back to, that we don't even want to think about. And they were obstacles stopping us from getting to where we needed to go, but we were willing to go beyond them. We were willing to, to go against uh, things that were part of our family, that were part of our lifestyle, these stigmas or whatever it was, so that we could get to belief. And there are so many people around us that are on this journey to belief. And there's some pretty heavy obstacles in their way right now. And will we use that as a stumbling block to them as we try and teach them? I mean, think about somebody that comes from a family that was not brought up the same way as you or as me. Maybe they were brought up in a different social class. Maybe they were brought up in a family that was non-religious in any way. Do we hold that against them as they're trying to come to an understanding about Jesus? People aren't going to grow maybe as fast as we do in the Scriptures. It might take some, some real studying and digging in and helping them get beyond some of those obstacles in their life. But everyone has a chance to come to know God. The drug addict that's on the side of the road that you see maybe in the Walmart parking lot every week. Can Jesus save him? The neighbor that you don't even speak to, the coworker that you don't think about, that you know what they do on the weekend and what they do in the nights and, and what their family looks like at home, can Jesus save them? The road to belief crosses many obstacles. And it's up to us to help people cross them and to not to raise them up to be higher and stronger. Those obstacles to be more difficult. We want to extend a hand and to help people. This leads me to the next thing. Spiritual maturity requires humility and work. One of the hardest phrases for any of us to say to another person is, I'm sorry. What do you think that first conversation was like with James and Jesus? When James saw Jesus raised from the dead? Now we don't really know if it was when James saw the resurrected Jesus that that's when his faith uh, where he turned everything around. I think there's a pretty strong case that we can make. That was probably the turning point. But what kind of conversation do you think that Jesus, and just extend that further, Jesus and his brothers had? Do you think there was a lot of, I'm sorry? I should have believed you. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have stopped you. I shouldn't have mocked you. I think about spiritual maturity. It requires humility, and humility makes us realize how dependent we are on God and one another. I'm struggling right now not having you with me on a regular basis. Because that's the point of the church, is that we are to be together to be an encouragement to one another. And when we're deprived of that, we're deprived of energy. We're deprived of accountability. We're deprived of so many great things that we need in our life. And humility says, I need you. I need your help because I can't do this alone. 
Humility says, will you forgive me if I've wronged you? Humility is for the, the man or the woman that comes to an understanding they need to follow God and they're going to march into their home and they're going to say, you know what, I've been living a life I shouldn't have been living. I've been treating you improperly. I've been doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Humility makes us go further because we bring ourselves down so that God may bring us up. And in that bringing up and that coming out of what we are in, that it requires work. Yes, God is able to do so many great things in our life. And He works on us. He chisels us and He molds us and shapes us. And we see all these things happening around us. But it takes work. person that's struggling with a drug addiction, it takes work to get out of that, to go through the detox, to go through shoring up things in their life, to stay away from decisions and things like that that's going to impair them later on. The person that's struggling with drinking, that's trying to get beyond that, there's stages they're going to have to go through. The person that's struggling with depression, anxiety, a, a, a myriad of other things that are happening in life. Not only does humility say, you know what, I need to change and I need help. I need God first and foremost and I need you, but work needs to be done. There's change that needs to happen. And I think about James going through this. How do you go from being an unbeliever to being a pillar that when you speak, the room listens. If you think about that individual that sits in the back of the room and doesn't really say anything, but when they say that one phrase or that one idea uh, that just kind of reshapes the whole conversation or the whole class that you've been in, if you were to quiz them a little bit more on their life, where have they been and what have they done and what have they overcome? Specifically, there's a few people that come to my mind that are part of the congregation here that I know when they speak, people listen. And it's not just because they open their mouth, it's because they've been in the world and they have gone beyond it because of God and they are in the hand of God. And you listen to them because they have, they have a journey that they've gone on. They, they've gone down the road and they've come to to understand God. And so when they're saying something, it's not just because they're repeating it, it's because they live it and they believe it. And so James going from, from nothing, an unbeliever to a pillar that people listen to and they, they want advice from and, and he reshapes the whole thing. How do you get to that point? It gives me hope that I know that I have said things and I know that I've done things, but I have hope that God is able to do more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. So imagine what He can do for you. What He can do for other people. So spiritual maturity requires humility. We understand about James, and it comes from uh, other people outside of Christianity, and it comes from without the Scriptures. And we find that James was killed because he was faithful to God. Josephus, a historian, and, and some people that wrote later, uh, they record that uh, when some of these new high priests started coming through the land, they kind of wanted to prove themselves with authority. And one of the things that they do is they go in and they find these lawbreakers, as Josephus describes them, that are there in Jerusalem that knew Jesus. And he names one person specifically, James, Jesus' brother. They drag him out of the city and they kill him. It was probably shortly before 70 A.D. If Jesus died somewhere around the 30s and you think about just the time getting to toward His death, 
all the great things that he accomplished. But we now call him a martyr of the faith. You know, someone that is a martyr, they die for a cause. They, they die for something they believe in. Not only did he grow to where he became a pillar, but he is willing to die for it. When you think about personal sacrifice, it looks like a lot of different things in our life, as I've already hinted on and talked about. But true personal sacrifice says, I believe this so much, I'll die for it. I believe I, I know I'm convicted that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I'm willing to die for it. I'm willing to suffer whatever the world throws at me because Jesus lives. When I think about the lessons that we can learn from James, they stand out very prominently that he, he crossed many barriers, but he came to faith. He grew spiritually through humility and work, and he remained faithful to death. It gives me hope as I live my life, and I hope it gives encouragement to you that God is able to do more than we can ask, think, or imagine. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you so much for the day that you have blessed us with, the opportunity that we have to study your word and to consider these things. I pray that you will be with your church that meets here, that you will help us as we go through life, help us to be an encouragement to one another. But I pray that you will be with all of us as we look at James as someone that went from unbelief, that didn't believe in your son, to being a pillar of the church that did so many great things that changed the, the whole tide of how things are going. Father, help us to look up to uh, people in our lives that are able to instruct us and let us learn from them. Father, give us humility. And we realize when we ask that, that we know that work is involved. And that there are some things that may come out, but we ask that you will give us humility so that we can change. So that we can be what you desire us to be. Father, help our convictions. Pray that you will help us to grow our faith until you call us home. We love you. And we pray this to you in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us tonight. We look forward to being with you again.